Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. Hope you're excited for another episode, wherever you're joining us from. I had this moment earlier. I was thinking, like, people from all around the world listen to this in the routine in different places. And I just wonder where. Like, walking their dog on the metro, riding a bike, meditating, sleeping. I I don't know. Don't listen to it at all. they're not listening to it meditating. Sometimes we're meditative. Mm, no, home. not so much. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I thought that was cool. I just like to think of the mass reach of just you and I with a microphone and a board sometimes and throughout the world. And we appreciate you guys sending us emails and just doing cool stuff, reaching out. Email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or on our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com on the contact us page. So that's all. That's really all I have for you. See you later. No, I'm just kidding. Today, really cool episode. You know, I don't know where we find these people. I just thought, oh, this seems like an interesting topic. And it was the, it was a great conversation. This is a conversation. Good back and forth. This was definitely one of those episodes that we went into it with just a few questions. And we were like, all right, let's see where this goes. And we'll just kind of follow things down different rabbit holes. Yeah. And there were definitely times that we dove Probably further than we thought we were going to down certain holes, but it was a lot of fun. I think it's because the topic... So a lot of what we talk about is writing in general. Our guest today is Kevin Smokler, and we'll tell you more about Kevin. 
But, you know, we talk about writing and his newest book, Practical Classics, 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School. It's just, it just jumped out at us because John and I often talk about how we never read the books we were supposed to. And I never really cared that I didn't read them until talking to Kevin. I mean, when you just saw Greg Gatsby, did that, did you just think to yourself, I can't believe I don't know this story at age 30? Yeah, it blew my mind that A, I had never read it, and B, I somehow avoided reading it all throughout high school, college, all that razzmatazz. Yeah, so first we want to go ahead and, and shout out, as you guys know, donations are the way we're rolling with this thing, and they're going great. I mean, we really appreciate the community. You guys respect what we do, and we want to keep bringing you great stuff. So thank you to Laura, Andy, Anne-Marie, Kenny, Jim... We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys again so much for those donations. As you know, we rely completely on donations and other things. We're we're 100% listener supported. Bottom line, you guys help keep the lights on. You guys help with buying new equipment, all that kind of stuff. So if you love the show, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink. There's a donation button there. You can do monthly recurring. It would be awesome to see somebody do that just so we can be like, we have a paying subscriber. This is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But no, seriously, anything you guys can throw our way, we completely appreciate. Every little bit helps. And that's our only sales pitch for today. As Chris mentioned, our guest this week is Kevin Smokler. He is a writer, a public speaker, a consultant. He's from San Francisco, so he gets to do a lot of cool stuff up there with a lot of really cool people. But, you know, in typical fashion, has a BA from John Hopkins University and an MA from the University of Texas at Austin. So another smart person. Another smart guy. And what was the thing you loved the most about him? He is on the advisory board at South by Southwest Interactive Conference, which is one of the places that I have to get to in the next couple of years. We're going I, next I feel year. Like, we're I going. feel like it would be my home. We're going. I mean, we did the Let's TED go. conference. Now we're going to go to that. So... So yeah, uh, we're going to turn it over to Kevin. Anything else you want to do, leave us a review, connect with us on social media, all that good stuff. Hope you enjoy it. Kevin Smokler. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you being here. As you know, as we talked about a little bit, most of the guests, almost all of them that we have on the show are authors, including yourself. And you are so ingrained into the literary world, the publishing world. We're really excited to have you on. I wanted to talk about your most recent book, actually. I want to dive in first, Practical Classics, 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School. Mm-hmm. I love the title. I love the premise. I love the book because John and I often talk about how little attention we paid ever, like in uh- any class with books. Uh, you and me both, brother. <laughs> oh, I, really? Uh, I for, first of all, thank you for for just having me on the show. I was flipping through some of the episodes, and you have some of my my contemporary heroes have have, have graced these airwaves before. Oh, um, no problem. Doctor Brown from University of Houston is someone I look up to a great deal, and I was I thought it was really neat to see her on your show. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah, um, and thank you for what you said about the title of the book. I, I really like how it turned out. It was my publisher's idea, not mine. We both sort of came up with Practical Classics, and the subtitle was all theirs. I think it gets right at the heart of what the book is about. It just takes about a week and a half to say. So um, <laughs> I've been practicing really since 
really since the beginning of the year. The book came out February 19th. I've been practicing since the beginning of the year on how to like say it quickly, but not have someone be like, Practical Classics what? Yeah. Spaghetti that flies with, you know, what did you say? Um, uh, spaghetti kangaroo. Um, so, yeah, it, the, the, the title is, 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 I think, right on but a mouthful. And, yeah, I, you know, uh, it's funny. People say, wow, you must have, like, like I, I get what kind of memories did rereading these books bring back? And, and were you, like, an A-plus, you know, you know all-state English student in high school? And the answer is no, no, and no again. And, and, and very few when talking about memories. Um, I, uh, I didn't pay much attention in, uh, in English class except when to um, berate my teachers and fellow students for wasting my time. Uh, I, I was that kid, unfortunately. Mm. And, uh, and I largely did it because I was mad that um, books, which are something I'd loved my whole life, were now homework. And I thought there was a, you know, with the self-righteousness only a 15-year-old boy can, can invent, I, I really thought there was a terrible injustice at work there. Uh, and so I made sure to let everybody know it whenever I could. John and I both read a lot now and we talk to authors. It's one of our favorite things to do. And there's so much great stuff to, to gain from it. And it's funny how just 10 years ago we sat in our humanities class with and, you know, had discussions about like books like Dante's Inferno and everything and just cheated our way through the class because I was so disinterested. And so when I saw your book title, I was like, man, he's speaking directly to us. So, you know, we wanted to talk to you about that and kind of what you found in this book, why people should go back and reread it. What prompted you to write it and realize that there are these things that as we mature, we can we can get a lot of information from. Yeah, I, I think the simple answer to your question is probably the same one that you two experienced, which is a little bit of wisdom and maturity. You know, I mean, you're in, listen, I, I'm sure there is a small percentage of people who go to college and sit in class and think to themselves, this is exactly where I want to be right now. <laughs> um, that certainly wasn't me. And, and I was and I, I, I felt blessed as all heck for where I went to school and I made great friends and I, I had a great time in college but most of the time when I was sitting in class I was busy scheming I was busy a thinking about all the other things I could be doing and be scheming about how to make class occupy as little of my time and headspace as possible I really wanted to spend my time with my activities and my friends and 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 you know making mischief but I think when you grow up a little bit uh, and when you have a little maturity and you realize there's sort of nothing to rebel against, nobody is telling you you have to do these things, and you have you have a sort of different view on on the educators and professors that were you know whose charge you were in, and you start to say to yourself, huh, maybe they weren't just maybe they weren't just you know wasting my time at eight thirty on a Monday morning. Maybe they actually had something to say that was worth saying, and maybe it wasn't just an evil cabal of of high school and college English teachers who decided that these books were important. Maybe it was the great sweep of, of history and humankind um, that decided that the great Gatsby or Pride and Prejudice or Dante's Inferno were, um, were important and, and had something to, uh, and we had something to take from them. I think so you have to mature a little bit. You also have to, at least I had to come around to the point of view that there was something in a classic that what that meant that there was more that there was a, another kind of relationship to be had with it than kind of kneeling before it and saying we're not worthy we're not worthy Wayne's World style. I really felt like if a classic is a book, as Italiano Calvino says, that never runs out of things to say, well, it probably never runs out of ways to approach it either, and that means you can approach it with playfulness, with silliness, with humor, with seriousness, 
with total subjectivity, with the best objectivity you can muster. And I really felt like the opportunity to do this book was to like get reacquainted with 50 old friends. No, and that's interesting. And it's funny you bring up The Great Gatsby. John just went and saw the movie the other day. Uh-huh. And he comes home and I said, how was it? And he goes, man, it's really depressing. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, but you knew that going into it, right? And he goes, in the amount of classes that have assigned me that book, I have not once opened it. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I have a vague memory of being assigned some portion maybe of The Great Gatsby in high school. I sure as hell didn't read it. Yeah. And uh, and I was pretty – and I think I think the uh, – John's reaction is, is going to be pretty uh, – is going to be uh, not, not common, but he won't be the only one who has it. I, I think there's plenty of people who in their mind The Great Gatsby is really a story about, you know, great suits and fast cars and raised martini glasses. And, and it's certainly about those things, but it also has an incredibly conflicted relationship with, with money and privilege. And, and of course we know from those immortal last pages that it's very much about the passage of time and what you can't get back and what, is lost being lost. And, uh, and that's a very light, like you have no perspective on that when you're, a, when you're a teenager, or even a college student, right. you know, a year feels like an eternity and you think time is going to stretch on forever. And you're just busy looking at your watch saying in September saying, Oh, for God's sakes, when is Halloween? When is Thanksgiving vacation? When is Christmas? When is my birthday? Hurry the heck up already. And, and, um, yeah. And, and, you know, you're amazed at how fast time moves, you know, and how quickly the present becomes the past when you get a little bit older. It's funny about The Great Gatsby because now I actually want to go back and read it. And this is something that I think I actually started learning, you know, recently within the last five years or so. All these movies and all these books that come out are just retelling of stories that are considered classics. And, you know, when we're younger and we're told that, we don't really believe it because they're like, oh, you watch this movie, that's related to this book. And then you read the book and you're like, that has nothing to do with it at all. And then now, older, I read these books and I'm like, oh my God, you're right. This theme throughout this, this emotion throughout this, this is all the same thing as what's being retold over and over and over again. And we just didn't really appreciate that as children or high schoolers. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't sort of send your mind, you know, what F. Scott Fitzgerald said, born ceaselessly into the past when you're when you're 12 and 13 years old. Right. I mean, how many of us have had the answer? I think the answer is all of us. But we've all had the experience of like, you remember the first time you like, heard of a band that you really liked and you were convinced that whatever song you heard first was their first song. Yeah. Like, 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 like you were positive that you were positive that like, that, that, you know, that, 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 uh, U2's first song must've been elevation because that was the first one you heard. Never mind The band was around 20 years before that song saw the light of sure. day. But I, I think, yeah, I think, I think we only, you know, we all have to sort of start somewhere and um, and one of the great things about getting older and getting smarter um, and um, and seeing the world as bigger than, than than your own borders is like is you realize how how interconnected all of these things are and how much how much they all share common themes like you say more than we think they do. Now, when you were choosing this list of the books, what was the criteria you used? I mean, did it just read like a who's who of Cliff's Notes or, you know, <laughs> did you have a certain thing that these books moved you upon rereading them or a theme throughout? 
originally I just called all of my teachers from high school and said, Hey, remember me? What did, uh, what did I, uh, what did we read back then in the mid 1980s when I was in high school? And then from there I, I went back and I was like, all right, you know, you know, using my, putting my being as, as, as logical and practical as I can, what books were probably, do people probably encounter in high school, even if I didn't specifically encounter them? Uh, and then it was really important to me that practical classics include books that maybe like my parents' generation had read in high school more than me. You know, um, I didn't read a separate piece, for example, in high school because I, when I was in high school, political correctness was just starting to gear up and books about like, you know, a bunch of white prep school boys in prep school were, were, not, were not sort of out of fashion at that point. But I also wanted to include books that were more likely to be read by people that were the generation after me, i.e. people that had graduated from high school maybe within the last five years. Because High March is on, and, and, and I thought a book w that was called Practical Classics, 50 books that Kevin, who graduated in 1991, you know, <laughs> before the invention of the internet, before the invention of the iMac, read that you should reread, I thought that was just really uninteresting to people. That's actually a good way of stepping outside yourself a little bit and, <laughs> and seeing that. Now, could you give us one book from each of those generations that you're like, guys, if you don't read this and really dive in, you're an asshole. Like, give me, th give me those three books. <laughs> oh, I would never say such a thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I was, I was, I was raised sort of, sort of midwestern and proper. And oh, all. okay. So you but, won't call uh, him that. But yeah. I, I can, I can, you know, I can tisk tisk. How yeah, about that? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, for example, I, I believe that I, I, I was amazed at how interested. I was in Edith Wharton after reading this book. And you look at Edith Wharton on the surface and you say, you know what? She was some aristocrat from 19th century New York. Uh, her maiden name was Jones, and her family was the one who inspired the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, and they were the Donald Trumps of their, or the, or the Kardashians of their day. And she mostly, most of her books are about people's conflicted relationship to money. And you absolutely cannot separate the fact that she had more money that she knew what to do with when she was writing all of these books. And you say to yourself, oh, for heaven's sakes, am I going to dive into Edith Wharton's oeuvre and, and, and just find myself reading about like lace curtains and porcelain knickknacks above the fireplace? And the truth is, gentlemen, like The Age of Innocence is just brilliant. It, it is just, no one has written a better book about our relationship with money and class and how it sort of, it sort of not, it not, eat, it doesn't eat, eat, eat away at us, but the way it forces us to sort of make very real adult decisions about where we come from and the relationship we're going to have with our background. Is it bad that I've never heard of that book? <laughs> I'm glad you asked the question. <laughs> uh, no, it's not bad at all. Um, it's I hadn't heard of it either until Martin Scorsese made a movie about it in 1993. That was the movie he made right right after Goodfellas. Yeah, I think it was the I think it was like the dream project he'd always wanted to do, and Goodfellas was a big hit, so he got to do it. Oh, awesome. Um, and Edith Wharton has written like a dozen books about like 19th century New York aristocrats, except when she wrote The Age of Innocence, she's like 57 years old and divorced, which is something proper young ladies like her didn't do back then. <laughs> and she was living in Paris and she's kind of a grumpy old lady, but she was badass too. You know, she had been like a World War I um, correspondent. And she, you know, she had never, she, she never had children and like Henry James thought the world of her. 
And so she was way more badass than her books let on. And, and I think there's a kind of fierceness to The Age of Innocence that I think you'll, you'll really like. Well, I love so that, that one. Let's, yeah, let's keep moving through the generations because I'm going <laughs> to yeah, read that now. Yeah, so I'm that, just that's being definitely honest. one that was probably more read. Like, like you guys are about 10 years younger than me. That, that book is probably more read by like my parents our, or our parents, both of our parents' generations than, okay. than ours. For us, like I definitely read like Slaughterhouse-Five. And, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and those books in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to tell you, though, one of the ones I really I really got off on rereading was The Catcher in the Rye. I had read The yeah. Catcher in the Rye many times as a young person and was pretty convinced that it was like one of those books that was, you know, like the, 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 the letter that who was the who was the guy in Mission Impossible or the man from Uncle who always sent you a note that was going to self-destruct in five minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was convinced like Catcher in the Rye was like the book that was basically meant to self-destruct the minute <laughs> graduated from high school. Um, <laughs> like, like it has nothing for you, you know, once you've once you've put on your cap and gown and, and received your diploma. But I got to tell you, I, I reread that book and I did a little research on J.D. Salinger. And it turned out like J.D. Salinger had started writing that book when he was a soldier in World War Two. And he had been part of the one of the regiments that stormed the beaches at Normandy. And he had seen dozens and dozens of his friends die. And there is a whole theme in that book about death and loss and, and the fact that Holden Caulfield has a younger brother who has recently died at the start of that book. And you realize to yourself, listen, maybe Holden Caulfield isn't just some bratty teenager. I hope I am no longer now that I'm you know, 19 instead of 18. Maybe he's just someone who's grieving. And this is and this is how a lot of us act when we're grieving. So I, I, I get the sense that that book was a lot more about loss than it was about, you know, the alienation of being 16 or something. And then like like if we want to talk like right now, like, yeah. like right now, the two the two that I like to throw out are Sherman Alexie's Reservation Blues, which was sort of the novel that made him famous. And that book is just is basically a great coming of age story about the world's first Native American rock and roll band. Basically, I like to say if you took like a John Hughes movie and you mixed it with the commitments and you made everybody Native American, you've got Reservation <laughs> Blues. Uh, and if that doesn't sound good to you, then we just can't be friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, Reservation Blues is really something special. And then also also David Foster Wallace's A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. I have that essay in Practical Classics, which is a 93-page essay about about a, a trip on a luxury cruise ship hmm. uh, and is at times, you know, hilarious and sad and depressing and and really, you know, one of those and total, even though it was written in 1995, totally contemporary in this sort of relationship we have with work and relaxation in the always on 21st century that we live in now. I'll tell you that last sentence and that last thought is something that we probably spend 80% of the show talking about and would be a whole nother topic that I can't even dive into because I, I want to pick your literary and publishing brain. Sure, but, sure. Um, but thanks for walking us through that little timeline. That was, yeah, that was cool. absolutely. And, I feel, and yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's probably very hard to be doing what you guys are doing with this podcast and not have the, the speed at which information comes at you in the 21st century, uh, not have that be part of the conversation. Yeah, so. it's kind of mind blowing. And it's funny because John and I have two very different opinions and takes on it all. I mean, he sucks in all information there is out there. And I tend to pick one thing and dive in a little bit more. So it helps. It, it creates a good dichotomy. But oh, that's good to hear. John, that's good to hear. I, I think I'm I think I'm more like John, but yeah. would like to think I'm more like you. <laughs> well, <I was laughs> Even just, though I'm clearly not. <laughs> yeah. And I was just going to say, because most of the stuff that I read, you know, it's it's quick blogs and, and things here and there. And now I feel terrible about the fact that I haven't read 
eh, 99% of the books that you mentioned and probably 95% of the books in your book. And looking at it, it's, I don't know. I just wonder if it was because I was forced to read these things at a young age that I've stayed away from them. And if that is the case, that sucks for me because I'm missing out on a lot of great stuff here. So I'm glad that you've written this book and brought it back into the forefront of my mind where now I'm going to go back and look at these books. Yeah, I I think you raised two really interesting points there. The first is like, believe me, I did not write practical classics with the intention of someone looking at the 50 books and going, well, (laughs) dusting off their hands and being like, yep, done all of those. Thanks for the reminder. But no, I mean, I, I, my hope is that everybody sees in there the incentive to not only read, but reread and and, and in whatever, in whatever amounts you feel comfortable with. Um, Practical classics is meant as an invitation, not a kind of prescription or or dictate. And then the, the other thing I think you said is like, yeah, one of the things I've been noticing as I've been promoting this book for the last three months is, is the question keeps coming up, like, do we kind of need the false start of, of getting acquainted with these books under less than ideal circumstances as, as students in order to maybe have a renewed appreciation for them uh, after we've gotten out of school? Hmm. And, and, and I think I, I, at first I didn't have an answer to that, but I think I'm kind of coming around to yes, because I believe if you go in cold when you're an adult, you're carrying with you the sort of weight of society more than you are when you're a kid. You sort of, if you if you've never if you've never heard of you know oh I don't know if you've never heard of crime and punishment and it gets handed to you at age forty five and someone says this is a classic you have to read it you're like oh my god what does that mean you know and hmm. where have I been and 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 what do you mean it's a classic that I haven't heard of and and and, and, and society is automatically guilt inducing you you know before you've even opened the before you've even opened the cover. If you have the sort of, you know, stumbling around in the dark you do when you're a teenager, at least then you have the basic idea and, and you, you, you sort of have this sense of what you're supposed to get from it in this very limited context. And then the hope is that when you come back to it, you don't just remember, you know, ninth grade English and, you know, your, your bad date to the freshman prom and, and acne and things like that, you know, <laughs> associated with, with crime and punishment. That's a good point. And I would be remiss if we didn't kind of talk about... Since given all your experience in kind of the publishing world and all the work you've done there and all the work we do on the show talking with authors, if we didn't kind of talk a little bit more about the the business of writing a book. Sure. And I know that on your website you talk about, you know, you do consulting and obviously you've given a ton of speeches about kind of business skills for artists and Mm -hmm. how to promote books and things like that. What do you find with your clients is the biggest sticking point when it comes to, hey, I'm a creative person. I'm an artist. I want to get my work out there, whether it be a book or, you know, an author. I don't know what other kinds of artists you work with, but some Mm -hmm. kind of sticking points and themes that you you feel throughout that. I've worked with a lot of writers, but also actors and filmmakers and musicians and and mostly individuals, but some at the organizational level too. And the the hardest thing for a creative person or organization to get their head around is uh, they are generally very good at the at the mindset that that, that encourages creativity, uh, or else they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And it is a different animal entirely to have the thing you create have a relationship with its audience. 
it's not only a different mindset, but culturally, um, the artist didn't have to think much about that until very recently. Really, really, I would, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is a sloppy distinction, but I would say pretty much until the invention of the internet, till the internet in the mid nineties told everybody that everything you were ever curious about is available at the click of a mouse. And now the number of whereas maybe there used to be you know a couple of faucets where we got our invitation now now the now the room is just filling with water all the time uh, and, and you have to decide you have to decide what what h2o molecule to pay attention to and if you're if you're the artist and you've created something how are you going to make sure that the person swimming in that tank of available arts and culture is paying attention to you and what you've created and the old paradigm of he who shouts the loudest, spends the most money, demands attention, gets it, simply doesn't apply anymore. It's called social media and not scoldy media for a reason. And what most artists have trouble with is, is the relationship you now need to have with your audience is one of ongoing communication where they are in effect sitting in the room with you. That doesn't mean they get to decide what you create. That doesn't mean they get veto power over the direction your career goes in. But it does mean that your work desk now has essentially a radio tower attached to it, sending continuous broadcasts to your audience because they want to know what's up. You know, what's funny is with the social media comment, it's so funny. People hear that and they, A, usually now get turned off. They're like, God, if I got to hear that word again. And B, they just go, oh, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, you know, whatever. But as John often reminds me, I mean, social media is just that. It's just being social through media. It's a community. It's a conversation, like you said, ongoing communication. It is not a platform. And we've, exactly. we've lost that. And I mean, John, you made a great point to me about that yesterday. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, people look at it as, as a soapbox or the people who are doing it wrong. And I found this interesting article that was talking about kids going away from Facebook and marketers are starting to worry that social media is dying. And the author was saying it's not dying. They're just actually making social media what it is now. And they're using tools to communicate with each other. So they're using like the Snapchats and the Twitters and all these different things to talk mm -hmm. back and forth as opposed to just being like, hey, look at this. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. That kind of thing. It's more the things that they can engage back and forth. And I think that's what you're saying, where these authors need to engage with the people that they want to be their consumer. And there needs to be that back and forth. And it might not be a one for one back and forth, but there has to be a little coming back from the author or the artist. Oh, absolutely. And part of it. Part of it is just the thing that we spoke about a moment ago, gentlemen, which is which is like, how do you if so, let's say like like let's say I, I hear about your podcast uh, and I want to, you know, stay tuned and see who's going to be on the next episode. You know, in the olden days, you had to continuously remind yourself that the smart people podcast was something I was interested in. Yeah. You had to remember that, oh, well, the smart people podcast puts up its new episode Thursday at 6 PM. So I got to go Thursday at 6 PM. And you had to keep those things in your mind at all times. And you guys, as the creator, what that meant is you had effectively had to make the sale for what you had created over and over and over again. Now, thankfully, you only have to make the sale once. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean you get to make 
you get to you get to you know once I sign up for your podcast, you get to start making lousy podcasts. <laughs> but it, but it does mean that I don't have to, you don't have to continuously remind the viewer or the listener that you exist, and that is a great thing. That is a great thing because it means someone can sign up to receive an artist's creative output, be it a podcast, be it paintings, be it theater, be it a book, and essentially be a fan for life. They can decide to jump off the boat anytime they want to, but they don't have to. There is no risk of them saying, saying, oh, shoot, it's Thursday at 7. I forgot, I forgot the smart, guy, smart People podcast. Oh, well. And on top of that, and this happens quite often with us, we will get a tweet or an email that says, hey, I came across Kevin Smokler, and you guys should have him on the show. And we'll tweet back saying, hey, that's a fantastic idea. We'll reach out. And then they have, you know, that feeling of engagement where they contributed it to the thing that they enjoy or that they love. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, they can tweet us anytime they want and be like, hey, who's coming on next week? And we have the ability to sit there and just engage in that conversation. It's a fantastic thing. I think so, too. I, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, this is the world we're living in, and there is no going back to the one that we had before. And, and I think, by and large, it's a very good thing, the, the fact that, that the relationship between artist and artwork and, and audience is closer than it has ever been. I think it keeps us all much more honest and living in a world that seems fairer and more democratic. It has its drawbacks. The world is is much louder and and more competitive for our time and attention than it used to be. And it means that for artists and creative people, it means that um, you no longer have as many gatekeepers to deal with, but now you just have twice as much work to do yourself. And believe me, you know, my last book came out eight years ago. I was was younger and perkier back then. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, three months on book tour, I, uh, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I did a book club visit and I was fortunate enough to find a parking space directly across the street from where the book club was being held. And I went and I did the book club visit and I walked out to my car and I got tired crossing the street. (laughs) Uh, And I drove home and I told my wife, guess what just happened? I got tired crossing the street. What in the heck is the matter with me? And she goes, you are burnt out. You have been taking yourself to and fro across the country for the last two months. Of course you're tired. And that is true that there is there is no getting around that. The only way the only way you can avoid that is if you're is if your last name is Rowling and you wrote about a flying wizard and and you no longer, you know, you no longer need to uh, do such things. I want to focus on something you said just a little bit ago where you said there's no going back. This is the way that we're going now. How Mm -hmm. do you see the industry? Where do you see it moving towards? I mean, like you said, you just have to do double the work now or triple the work or quadruple the work if you're going to self-publish, write an ebook and not go through the stereotypical gatekeeper of getting a literary agent and then yeah. getting published, that type of thing. What do you see happening with the industry? Is there space for both to the point where self-publishing and ebooks and those type of things can grow to almost a level of the traditional book industry? Oh, mo- most definitely. I, I think we're just at the very beginning, and maybe there aren't enough examples to make it sound like I'm, I, I'm making a good case for it just yet. But there, uh, we are at the very, very beginning of that of, of that happening, and and I think it is only going to increase the 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 amount. There's just too much of an opportunity there, and too many people, and too much you know sort of interest shifting to reading digitally. Also, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I publish with a traditional publisher and I, mm-hmm. I have a, a, a traditional, you know, literary agent insofar as those things are traditional. And, mm-hmm. 
And I, you know, and I did it sort of the basic way. The thing I didn't do the basic way is one, I think one of the old patterns of publishing that really needs to, to go away and stay gone is, is the, is the lack of transparency between publisher and author. You know, I, uh, when I signed with my publisher, I had a very, I had a very clear conversation where I said, listen, I am willing to work my tail off on behalf of this book, but I'm not going to do it in absence of any information as to how I'm doing. Hmm. So I need to know whenever I, whenever I ask, I need to know how well this book is selling. Uh, I need to be able to ask at all times and I need you to provide me regular reports. My editor very naturally said, well, we usually provide those things twice a year. And I said, that's not, that's not often enough. I'm okay. not going to work for straight for six months straight without any idea of whether my work is doing any good. I was going to um, ask, is that typical? Because, you know, if you if you're selling an ebook, like you go on and you click wherever you're selling it through and you see exactly how many are being sold, where they're being purchased, all that kind of information. So that's interesting. Did you end up being able to get that information how oh, yeah. and when you yeah. want they, they, they were they were very good about it and he wasn't he wasn't saying it to be difficult he was mm-hmm. saying it because that's just what they've always done the industry has traditionally been set up around the idea of keeping the author in the dark and and with good reason you know authors of the past probably made a whole lot of a, a whole lot of trouble and got in the way of promotional efforts so a i insisted on a degree of transparency and b what that allowed me to do is I was able to say, okay, at what point are you no longer disappointed you pub- you decided to publish my book? Hmm. And they said, okay, that's X number of copies. And I said, fantastic, X plus 25%, that's the finish line. Go. Saying go to myself, of course. But <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I, what, what that taught me and what I think is the lesson for anyone engaged in a creative endeavor is you have to have some reasonable set of goals, you have to have some idea of what the finish line is. And you can decide once you've crossed it whether you want to keep going or not. But your finish line, can't, I can't tell you how many authors I talk to. I say, well, how many copies of this book, print or digital, would you like to sell? And they say something like, how many copies does Stephen King usually sell? And I'm like, <laughs> Stephen King, who's been doing this for 40 years and started, started when this industry was entirely different and essentially reinvented the horror genre for modern times? You're not playing the same game Stephen King is playing. You need a reasonable set of goals for what you're doing. And so once you set that, if you supersede it, great, that's a good problem to have. Decide from there if you want to do more. But but don't set yourself up to be disappointed because then you're not learning anything. Running for a goal that's impossible, every everything you do is going to look like a failure, and that's not actually true. That's really funny. Just in terms of the podcast, even we used to pay a lot of attention to downloads. And, you know, when we were about to hit a thousand down, like average a thousand downloads an episode, I'd be like, man, mm-hmm. I just want to get to a thousand. Then we got to a thousand. And I was like, oh, I want to get to five thousand. And then we got to five thousand. And I was like, I want to get to ten thousand. And finally, John goes, when are you going to stop? Like, it's yeah. cool. We're having fun. And this whole time. And I was like, man, you're right. Because from day one, I was like, nobody's going to listen. And right. it's somewhere along the line, you just got to enjoy the ride. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, yeah, if, if the only enjoyment you're getting out of it is watching the numbers tick up, well, I can give you, I can give you 16 other businesses you can be in yeah. where the numbers will tick up pretty fast. <laughs> Crack is a great business for that. You know, um, uh, if that's what you're really looking for, um, I, I don't think you should ignore those numbers. Obviously, you want some data on, on whether what you're doing is reaching anybody. Yeah. 
And then you have to decide, you know, what level of ambition you're comfortable with and whether you want to push more or not. But but you guys would have been sunk if if before you recorded the first episode, you were like, now, nah, now, nah, how many does that Ira, how many downloads that Ira Glass guy get? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, Kevin, I know we kind of kind of took you down a little longer than we meant to, but it was a great conversation. I mean, I really enjoyed talking to you about these these things, and you've kind of reinvigorated me to go look at some some older books that I've always wanted to be the guy that can quote books, you know, be like, yeah. well, as Dante said, <laughs> yeah, and then I realized I have to read I, the that person. But me too. Yeah, but then I realized I had to read it in the first place. So the age of innocence is actually, it's on my list now. I, I use Goodreads. I love that site. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, it's a great service. It, w- thankfully, that those folks moved from Los Angeles up here to San Francisco. So, Oh, really? Yeah, we have them around now, which is really neat. Man, it's fantastic. So Practical Classics, great book. I know you have some other ones. Where else can our listeners go to kind of uh, learn? You do a lot of different things. And, and you know, if people want to learn more about it and see what you do, your website or, you know, your social media that you keep active... The sort of overall place to see everything I'm up to is just my website, which is kevinsmokler.com. That's S-M-O-K-L-E-R. And then I spend most of my social media time on Twitter, which is – and my Twitter name is Weegee, W-E-E-G-E-E, and and I – I I have a real problem with oversharing. So (laughs) so you'll get a lot of – you'll get a lot of trivia and stuff about words and animal group names and songs from the 80s. That's kind of, you know, kind of the things I'm interested in, in addition to, um, you know, great journalism and stuff about books and things like that. I mean, that, that seems like an amazing Twitter feed to me. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I don't think it's for everybody. But, but <laughs> exactly. I, but I, I really feel like I really feel like my job on Twitter is not to is maybe 10 percent to let you know what I'm doing and 90 percent to be interesting. Right. You know, I, I think I think really, you know, in the oversaturated information world we live in, really, the only currency is are you interesting or not interesting? Mm. And uh, and that's that's what I aim for every day. I like that, actually. I I think that's good advice for everybody. Well, again, thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the show. Best of luck with the the book tour and everything you got going on. Oh, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Listen, if you've stuck around, you are a very, very special person in my heart. I don't, honestly, I don't know how many people stick around for these outros. We were just talking about Hey, is this actually a waste of our time doing these outros? Does anybody listen? I like talking, but I don't know if anybody listens. Of course we like talking. But if you like hearing us talk, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink. Throw us a couple bucks. I know we have been driving this into the ground, but we are trying to make this sustainable and put more time into this and who knows? Possibly one day, turn it into a job. Yeah, full time. And we're, we're moving studios again. So at, sadly, John and I are moving out. We're, we're not going to be living together. So that's kind of rough. Yeah. So if anybody can actually help me no, wait a second, that would be in the past. So my move was fantastic. Because <laughs> this will come out on Sunday and we are moving his stuff in two days. But anyways, I, I forgot to thank Crystal for the donation. So she's going to get two thanks because she's going to get the outro. And then next episode, she's going to get one on the intro. Yeah. So Crystal, we're checking to see if you listen to the outros. Ooh, impressive. Hey, guys. Anyways, thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. Love you guys. Buy us a drink. <laughs> <laughs>